Father, thank you for the ways that you watch over us and your presence here now and the way you can even take some of the roads we've been on in the past and and you can get us on the right track and you can even take some of the bad decisions of the past and use them for your glory today. Thank you, Lord, for the great privilege of being together in a Bible church and for hearing your word and for having a church family that surrounds us. And so, Lord, during this hour, would you speak to us, encourage us and strengthen us, we pray, through your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray alone for the cause of the gospel and for the glory of Christ. Amen. I have in my mind a snapshot moment. I was um, a senior in high school and I was very, very pleased with myself. Do you know those moments um, when you think that maybe you're something that you're not? Uh, This particular morning in my high school hallway, I was walking down the hall and I had my new cowboy boots on. I had uh, taken some of my dairy farm milk and cow money and I had ordered up a pair of square-toed cowboy boots that had eagles stamped in the, in the uh, upper part of them, and I was wearing my new cowboy boots and uh, thought that I was uh, quite the man, and right when I was in front of a group of girls about whom I cared about their opinion, I did one of those things where, you know, when your heel goes down and your heel keeps going, <laughs> rather than uh, walking in stride the way that you ought to, and uh, doesn't the Lord have a way of taking those moments when you have a distorted view of yourself and bringing it into focus even by using what other people might be thinking of you at that moment. I invite you to turn this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we are actually going to complete our list of characteristics of a spiritual leader that we've been working our way through this summer And you need to know that as we wrap this up with verses 6 and 7, there are two contrasting and yet parallel concepts that the Apostle Paul is emphasizing to young Timothy that must be guarded about the pastor or the spiritual leader of the local church. And one is what he thinks about himself. And to guard against being puffed up with pride and to think you're kind of the man when maybe you're not as well as have a proper perspective about what people outside of the church think about you. It is interesting how the two relate. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a few moments. Let's reread our text one more time. We're not done talking about church leadership or the function of church leadership, but we are going to wrap up this morning this summer series that we've been meandering through, taking these qualities in this list one at a time and using them to challenge ourselves as a church at large. Do we have this kind of leadership? Are our leaders characterized by these minimum criterion? And also using it to challenge all of us to to step it up spiritually and to use these qualities to ask ourselves if we have these things present in our lives as we walk with the Lord. The Apostle Paul, speaking to young Timothy, the pastor in charge at Ephesus, responsible to implement this list, says that it is a trustworthy saying, if anyone, verse 1, chapter 3, aspires to the office of overseer, that would be a pastor or an elder, you might use the word bishop in some churches, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, 
not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not, verse 6, now for our text, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. Well, these two verses present two concepts that Paul is looking for in the spiritual leader, and he gives his reasons why. Let's dig in a little bit here. And the first thing we see in our text in verse 6 is that the Apostle Paul presents a measurable qualification for spiritual leadership in the local church. It's a measurable qualification. What is that qualification? It's how long have you been saved? How long have you been walking with the Lord? Where are you on the maturity chart of the Christian life? Notice what he says. He says, Somebody appointed to spiritual leadership in the local church must not be a recent convert. He must not be a new convert, somebody who's just come to know the Lord. It's an interesting thing to study the Greek text here um, because the word that is translated from the Greek New Testament into English as new convert or recent convert is a word that sounds like and from which we get our English word neophyte, neophyte. You know what that word means? It means recent convert. It means somebody who's a greenhorn, somebody who's brand new to what they're doing. He must not be a neophyte. But if you look at the root of that word, it comes from the meaning in classical Greek literature that has the idea of of a newly planted tree. Now that's a pretty neat word image, isn't it? Think about it. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, look, you got problems in your church, and they did at Ephesus. That's what chapters 1 and chapter 2 were about. They, had, they were teaching false doctrine, they had a false gospel, they had mixed up leadership, they had arrogant, unqualified leadership. And so the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, the first thing you have to do to straighten out your mess is you've got to have qualified leadership. And among your qualified leaders, they are not qualified if they're a new convert or a recent convert or a newly planted tree. That's a really good word image, isn't it? You ever plant a new tree? I, we really enjoy it um, and try to do it every year, try to add a tree or two. Once in a while, when I'm enthusiastic, I'll even find a tree out in the woods when I'm taking a walk, and I'll mark it, and then in the wintertime, uh, when, when the leaves are off, I'll take and transplant it to the edge of my yard or something. I've had fairly good success with that. But when you plant a new tree, what, you, new tree, what do you do? You dig your hole, you plant your tree, you walk away? No. You have to stake it, don't you? Especially if it's a young sapling tree or even bigger trees. You can't just walk away. Why? Because it hasn't taken root. It cannot stand against the winds of the storms that will come. Now use that imagery with a recent convert. Maybe they're really zealous for the work of the Lord. Proverbs warns the individual. and says you have to be careful about having more zeal than you have knowledge. That's a person that's dangerous. Sometimes we put it this way. That's a person that doesn't know that they don't know. And if you don't know that you don't know, you can really get in trouble. And so one of, the, one of the first steps towards maturity is seeing that you don't know very much and that you need to learn more. And so a newly planted, planted tree cannot stand against the winds of adversity. So you put, I always use three stakes usually. 
And then you're really careful. You know, sometimes you cut a garden hose or it depends on the size of the tree and take care of the trunk of the little sapling and tie it carefully. And, and then you kind of watch it. And then as it strengthens, you untie it and let it, let it face the winds a little bit. And by so doing, the roots are going to firm up a little bit and it's going to grow stronger. And you, you just watch over it. You don't just walk away from it. Same thing in local church leadership. You can't just turn a new convert loose. You can't just say because some guy's enthusiastic and maybe he's a good businessman. Maybe he's got leadership positions outside of the church. Maybe he's a guy who has a lot of money. There's different reasons why a new convert, a new convert might be appointed to leadership. Maybe there's somewhat celebrity status in your community. It's like, man, they're a really good guy. We really need them in leadership. They're really great. No, they don't know their Bible. They're a new convert. They're a newly planted tree. The Apostle Paul is going to tell us why he's worried about a newly planted tree being in leadership. I was just thinking about some practical reasons as we think as an elder board, as we watch men mature and as we appoint people to leadership and as we prayerfully consider God's will for the, for the leadership of our church. But just think about church leadership and local church leadership. And I jotted down just as an aside some reasons why it was very wise of the Apostle Paul to teach this. One is that when you're in leadership, even in the local church, leaders get criticized, don't they? Leaders get criticized. You know, man, I just, it was too cold in there. I don't like, you know, you just chose the most unfriendly church I've ever been to. Or, man, don't you have some more handicapped parking places? And why do you use screens? What's wrong with hymnals? Why do you use hymnals? Get rid of that organ sound. Bring a band up to the platform. What are you guys doing? Don't you know anything about church? Pretty much not, but here we are. And you get criticized, and you know, if you're not part of a stable base of leadership, and you don't have some maturity, listen, somebody around here is called by God to define reality, and you know who it is? It's the elder board. That's God's plan for the local church to define our reality. God's will for Fellowship Bible Church is most often made known right through the elder board. That's God's plan in the New Testament. And one of the things that comes with being in charge is criticism and a newly planted tree, a neophyte, a new convert. Man, it's so disheartening to handle criticism, isn't it? We hate criticism. Criticism breeds conflict, and it's very dangerous. Another thing I was thinking about, uh, a new convert being in leadership that's a dangerous thing, is that leaders and spiritual leaders in the church, and this is biblical... We're even told in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, to imitate their manner of life. Leaders are copied. Not only are leaders criticized, but they're copied. People watch spiritual leaders. People will use spiritual leaders as an excuse for their own bad habits sometimes. Well, he did it. And maybe you've had this happen, and I really apologize, but um, on occasion I use the S word, stupid, from the pulpit. And you go home and your little boy says, something is stupid. And you say, no, 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 Johnny, we don't say that. Don't say that. So, Pastor Van said it. You know, you're being watched. If you're a spiritual leader, you're being watched. You're being imitated. You're being copied. And if you're a new believer, you don't need that responsibility. Another thing that spiritual leaders do is counsel. They give direction. People seek them out and ask God's will for their life through you. That's a scary thing. How often do I sit at my desk and I think, I have no idea, Lord, what to tell this person. Things are pretty broken here. What do I do, Lord? And then all of a sudden, the Lord will bring a concept or a verse or some experience from the past and we're able to 
try to weave a plan together and build a framework of restarting. Counseling, that takes maturity, it takes experience, it takes depth of insight. A neophyte doesn't have that. And then just the normal challenges of the ministry, the weight of the ministry, the Apostle Paul called it. Just waking up in the morning and and having the responsibility of the flock on us. What direction are we going? What about these ministry opportunities? What about those seasons or those windows of time when it seems like everything comes unglued? It really doesn't. And many people don't even know what's going on. But all of a sudden, there'll be three families falling apart at one time and some crisis in ICU over here. And that's the time in the middle of the night when the phone will ring and somebody else is heading to the emergency room or, or has a busted up living room from somebody going berserk. And, and all of a sudden, there's all this stuff going on all at the same time. It doesn't happen often, but when it happens, it seems like it really happens. And there's just the challenges of ministry. What do we do? Where do we go? How do we do this? A neophyte doesn't need that on them. A new tree would blow over in the windstorm. But the Apostle Paul adds his reason why. Look what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He said he must not be a recent convert. Okay, that's our measurable qualification But he's going to point out, number two, the leader's greatest temptation. The leader's greatest temptation. The Apostle Paul is very concerned about putting a neophyte in leadership because of this. Look what he says. Or he may become puffed up with conceit. Boy, that's important, isn't it? When you're in a leadership position, the flesh is tempted to respond in a way that is unspiritual and ungodly. People are elevating you in their eyes. They're addressing you. They treat you with respect. You're esteemed as somebody who's somebody. And the next thing you know, you believe what's being said about you. It's like the pastor that... There's a young pastor that uh, was standing at the door. He's kind of a gifted minister who was preaching. His preaching was pretty good, and he was a cut above the ordinary. And as the ranks of his congregation began to grow, uh, his head followed suit. And he had delivered his latest barn burner message one morning and one of his loyal parishioners earnestly shook his hand at the door afterwards and said, Pastor, you're becoming one of the greatest expositors of this generation. Well, as he squeezed his head into the car after church and (laughs) slid behind the steering wheel, his weary wife was alongside him and all the kids stuffed in the back seat. He could not resist sharing this story with his wife. Mrs. Franklin told me she thought I was one of the greatest expositors of this generation, he said proudly, caught up in the heady swirl of the woman's exaggerated compliment. No response. Fishing for affirmation, he glanced at his wife, who was silent, who then turned and with a weak smile prodded, he he prodded her with a weak smile and said, I wonder just how many great expositors there are in this generation. Unable to resist the opportunity to set the record straight, she said quietly, One less than you think, my dear. (laughs) But that's the temptation, isn't it, of public ministry, of spiritual leadership, to think maybe you've got it together at a little better level than everyone else. And in reality, you ought to, but it doesn't give you a reason to boast. So the Apostle Paul says, listen, The leader's greatest temptation is this right here, that you would become puffed up with conceit. You know, when you're a spiritual leader, you're the devil's target already anyway. 
One of the things you need to know that if you step into spiritual leadership and you ever accept the position of spiritual leadership, you have a target on your back from Satan. I remember one time up in Imanic in Alaska when I was working up there and, and I heard a holler and a shout. We were right along the river there about 10 miles up the Bering Sea and all the Eskimo boys went running down to the bank where their boats are. They have these fishing boats that they have and they just went crazy. They were yelling and screaming and I watched and there was probably 20, 30 boats just zigging and zagging and I said, what's going on? What's going on? And they said, seal, seal, seal. Somebody had spotted some seals coming up this inlet where the village was. Later on, I found this on the bank. It's a little harpoon that the boys use when they do that. Um, they make them out of a piece of stick, and they load it with a shotgun shot underneath a piece of pipe that they saw, a piece of conduit or brass copper pipe, copper water pipe. And then they tie a string to it, and then they take a 16-penny or a 20-penny nail, and they hammer it out, and then they file it sharp so that it sticks out. It has a little point to it. And then one of them will get up in the front of their boat, and they're zigzagging, looking for those seal to come to the air, come up for air. And then they try to get, a, get it into it, and then they tie it. They have a string tied with some trash on the back of the string. And then they follow the float around in the water, and then guys lean over their boat, and they're going fast and zigging, and the waves are running, and they're shooting at those seals with shotguns. It's just crazy. That's the image. If you're going to be a spiritual leader, Satan and all of his minions say, spiritual leader, spiritual leader, let's go, let's go. And they're looking to harpoon you. You are in Satan's crosshairs if you are a spiritual leader. Because why? Because how effective is it? How effective is it if Satan can embarrass the cause of the gospel and the church by messing with the leadership? And it happens all the time, doesn't it? If it's not his morals or his marriage or his money, it's just the pride and arrogance that wells up inside a man that opens the door to all kinds of sin. Listen, it's the fear of the Lord that protects us, isn't it? It's the fear of the Lord that brings on wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord that allows us to walk in humility. And the Apostle Paul is worried about a neophyte being in leadership because a neophyte will respond to pride he will respond to words and compliments and affirmation and begin to believe the press about himself. There's some powerful examples in Scripture about this. I think of, of Saul in 1 Samuel 15. He was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites and he didn't and he kept the best of the calves and the best of the sheep and he even kept King Agag and he put him in a cage and he marched him up and down the streets so that everybody would say what? There's old King Agag of the Amalekites, and our king got him. He was supposed to kill him. He was supposed to wipe him out. He was disobedient. Why? So that he could be the man. God had put him in leadership. But he started to think thoughts about himself that were out of line with what God thought about him. And he became puffed up with pride. And do you remember when God's man Samuel came and thumped him on the chest? And he said, what's up? what's up with the bleeding of sheep? What's up with the lowing of the cattle? What's the deal with King Agag? What are you doing? And Saul says, I have, I have carried out the command of the Lord. And Samuel says, you have not. And as a result, God is shutting you down. And you remember what Samuel told Saul then? He said, when you were little in your own eyes, didn't God lift you up over all of Israel? And the converse is true then. And now that you're big in your own eyes, God is taking you down. 
And see, the Apostle Paul is concerned about the same thing in the local church. We are not to appoint someone into leadership who's a neophyte because later on God's going to have to take somebody down that we put in position who is unqualified. Don't put somebody in there that God just later on is going to have to remove because of pride. Another powerful picture of that is old King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he was a godless man. He was a pagan. But old King Nebuchadnezzar, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 4, it's a powerful story, isn't it? He's looking out over all of Babylon, and he's so proud of his big country, his big city, and he was indeed the most powerful man on the planet those days. And what does he say? He disregards God. He says in his heart, look what I have built. Look at the house Jack built. What a great thing it is. And God said, you are out of here, buddy. And for the next seven years, I don't know what they did. They probably built a special farm for him. He became, he became overcome with some kind of a psycho, psychological illness where he personally, King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, who thought he built everything and did not acknowledge that God had lifted him up and did not acknowledge God in his life, he, he was overcome with a psychological illness where he believed he was an animal. And somehow, physiologically, he responded to his own psychology. He literally began to grow hair long and his fingernails were long. He walked around on his hands and his knees and he ate grass, believing himself to be an animal. Some kind of a weird disorder. And for seven years, they had to keep him out of the sight of the people. Where's old Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he's out there behind the barn eating grass. Sleeps in a pile of straw manure every night. He thinks he's a, he thinks he's a Holstein cow. It's out of his ever-loving mind. Why? Because he thought he was something that he was not. God said, you're out of here. God doesn't tolerate this. God doesn't tolerate it among leaders in his Bible churches either. A leader's greatest temptation is to think he's something that he's not. To become puffed up with pride. Paul goes on then to warn, number three, about the devil's fall and condemnation. Number three, the devil's fall and condemnation. He said he must not be a recent convert because he may become puffed up with conceit. And if he does that, he will fall into the same condemnation as the devil. What was the condemnation of the devil? We will not take time to look it up, but if, you want to, if you're taking notes and you want to read these texts, it's Isaiah chapter 14. Verses 12 through 14. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. And then double check Revelation chapter 12 around verse 9. There, there appear, appears to be an account of what happened in history past as well as what's going to happen in history future. But in, Eze in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28, we have the best that we can tell is talking about Lucifer, the son of the morning. Evidently, Satan, before the origin of the universe, God had created his angelic beings. And the weight of evidence there seems to show that Lucifer was the highest ranking of angels and was probably the most beautiful of angels. And he was one of the angels that was closest to the throne of God. 
He then became puffed up with pride and wanted to be God. And so there was a great angelic battle. I don't know why God allowed there to be an angelic battle. All God had to do was speak the word and he was gone. And I take it that ultimately that's what he did. So it was evidently a sifting out of angels because our best guess from Scripture, the Bible only gives us snapshot truth about this, is that these angels that followed Lucifer, the... Uh, the, the, I was going to say mutant, but the, the angel who, he wasn't mutant, but he was trying to commit mutiny. And uh, he, he was trying to take God's spot, and evidently he had a following of angels, and God kicked them all out of heaven. He becomes Satan, and those angels, our best understanding would be is that's where demons come from. They are expelled angels who rebelled against their creator. Some who are held today in chains and in bonds, the book of Jude says, Peter says it, it's implied in Revelation that some of them will be let out out of the ground. Some are held there and some are evidently free to roam the earth right now. But God kicked them out and that's the condemnation of the devil that Paul's talking about here. You want to know what the condemnation of the devil is? It is thinking you're something that you're not to the degree that God removes you from his service. God takes you out of the game. You might be the best player that's ever been around, but God says, you're out of here. I don't need you, and I don't want you when you're puffed up with pride. Now, this is interesting. He goes on in verse 7 then to say that it matters then not only what the elder in verse 6 thinks about himself. Okay, that's verse 6. What does this guy think about himself? Is he puffed up, puffed up with pride? But then in verse 7, it's, what does everybody else around town say about him? And so number 4 is the elders around town reputation. The elders around town reputation. Let's look back at where we've been. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, so there is a measurable qualification for him. He's, he must not be new. He must be mature. We recognize the leader's greatest temptation to become puffed up with conceit. And then, number three, fall into the devil's condemnation so that, number four, we wonder about the elders around town reputation. Look at verse seven. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Who are the outsiders? The outsiders are people who don't come to our church. Many who are outside of the body of Christ. It's the people who work at Walmart and the people who are downtown and our next door neighbors over here who don't know Christ and don't come to our church. All right, now it's interesting because I believe that these two fit together. At first, it doesn't seem like it. The Apostle Paul says, the pastor and the elders and the spiritual leaders of the church must not be novices or neophytes or new newbies, lest they become puffed up with pride. So it's very important what they think about themselves. And along with that, part B is, it's very important what everybody else thinks about them. And think about this. Who are the pastors and the spiritual leaders who often ruin the reputation with outsiders? It's the ones who become puffed up with pride on the inside and spoil the reputation of the church on the outside. They're arrogant. They're pushy. They're not Christ-like. They have a bad reputation in the community. I remember one time I was dealing with a businessman on some matters. And a, and a pastor in our community then, this is many years ago, and a pastor in not this community came up, a name of a pastor came up. And the businessman just straightened up and said, I won't have anything to do with him. I said, what are you talking about? I said, I did a deal with him one time and he wrote me a bad check. And I called him and talked to him about it and he never did anything about it. 
there's a bad reputation in the community. Just one. You know what? That might be the total exception. There might be a reason that that pastor wrote a bad check. And, you know, everybody makes mistakes. It doesn't matter. It was over for him, for that guy. That was his reputation. And instead of going into town, and this is good for everybody to think about. Okay, you see the application, not just to spiritual leadership, but to all of us. What do you think about yourself? And are you puffed up with pride? Do you have a proper perspective about yourself? And then what does the neighborhood think about you? Do your neighbors know that you're a God-fearing Christian? Do your neighbors, when they look at you and when they know you, say, those people are different, they're followers of Jesus Christ? Or are they like, oh man, those are the most difficult people in our neighborhood? You know, don't you think that our integrity should speak? Don't you think that our godliness and our moral character that is all stemming from Scripture should just flow out of our lives of godliness? I think so. Don't you think that the, that the fruit of the Spirit should be evident in our lives, that when people deal with you in the greater community outside of our church, that they should see the love and the joy and the peace and the gentleness and the kindness and the self-control, all that come from the Spirit of God in you? I would think so. Now, I think this. I think that it's very important that when we get, out, get in our car and we go downtown, we don't think this thought. We don't think, now, I wonder how I can impress these people that I'm a cool Christian. I wonder how I can impress these people with my godliness. See, that's arrogance. See, a truly humble person doesn't think like that. A truly humble person doesn't walk into the Valley Hardware store and say, I wonder how I can make them know that I'm a Christian. And in, in just, you know what, you go in and you, you look at Buck Knives and you talk to Dave and you just have a good time and you walk out and you know what he thinks? That's a good guy right there. That guy was decent enough to ask about me and how I'm doing and this. Now, we do think about how we can share Christ with them, but we don't think about how can I impress them with me and my Christianity. I want to impress them with my Lord Jesus. I don't want to impress them with me. And out of the flow of just a humble life, just be who you are in Christ. I'm not thinking about, how do I impress these people? That's arrogant. And you're going to fall and you're going to make a fool out of yourself. You just want Christ to be seen in you as you live out the reality of his claims on you. And look what he says, verse 7. The reason we want to be well thought of by outsiders is so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. One of the things the devil wants to do is disgrace your name in the community. He wants people to think that you're no good. He wants people to think, oh, you can't trust that guy. His eyes watch other women. His money goes places you would never dream of. He's got a value system that I can't believe. Oh, I saw him party and I saw him do it. So that you fall into disgrace and into the condemnation of the devil. And he's able to ruin your testimony. And when he ruins the testimony of a spiritual leader in the community, he often ruins the testimony of the whole church. You know, people have a hard enough time already thinking highly of pastors and preachers. They always kind of worry when a preacher comes around. They're always looking for hypocrisy anyway. Do you know that in spiritual leaders? I deer hunt up in Preston County, and Janet's uncle was always famous for trying to get me to shoot them their pole the bucks without horns, does. He's an old farmer, and he'd tell me all the time, you got to shoot those pole bucks. And you know what I knew he was always doing after? Now, he, wanted, he was a farmer, and he wanted deer removed off his property. But I only had a buck tag, 
And the moment the preacher shot a doe without a doe tag, what do you think would have happened all over that farm? Oh, the preacher shot a pole buck. The preacher shot a doe. Anybody else could have done it. But if the preacher did it, oh, we would be hearing about it. Oh, he would think that was great. Look at that preacher. Now what are you going to preach Sunday about keeping the law? You see, people think all kinds of thoughts. What about that preacher? You know, don't worry about what people think. You worry about what God thinks. You let Christ flow through you and you just live out your life with a grace for the cause of the gospel. But we have to be alert, don't we? 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So what do we learn from this lesson today? One thing in this list of the criteria of an elder we learn is that spiritual leadership, qualified spiritual leadership is mature leadership. That's what this whole list is about, isn't it? Qualified spiritual leadership is mature leadership. I think that we learn also from this list that we have to live at a level of alertness and wisdom. And then today's lesson specifically, I think that we need to recognize that it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. A spiritual leader who is consumed with Jesus has no problem with pride. Because you're just thrilled to be his servant. And like John the Baptist, you would say, I'm not even worthy to tie the laces on Jesus' sandal. I'm just thrilled to be Jesus' servant, saved by grace, preaching his word, used of him any way he can. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. Do you remember this old poem? It's about the fist in the bucket of water. Listen. Some time when you're feeling important. Some time when your ego's way up. Some time when you take it for granted that you are the prize-winning pup. Some time when you feel that your absence would leave an unfillable hole. Just follow these simple instructions and see how it humbles your soul. Take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in it up to your wrist. Now pull it out fast, and the hole that remains is the measure of how you'll be missed. (laughs) You may splash all you please as you enter, And stir up the water galore, but stop, and you'll find in a minute, it's back where it was before. It's a good perspective, isn't it? When you get a lot of wow factor going about yourself, and you got your cowboy boots on, and the girls are watching, it's just a good time to remember that it's all about Jesus. It's not all about me. It's not all about anybody. You know, what happens to a group of people who just get eaten up with Jesus? and forget about themselves and are all about the gospel and are serving one another and serving Christ. And they don't care who gets the glory and they don't care who gets the merit as long as Jesus Christ is praised. Amen? What happens? I don't know if we've ever seen that yet. I think God begins to do a work that's just amazing. Let's bow in prayer. And so, Father, we dedicate our lives to the gospel to the cause of the church here and to the work of the churches and the gospel around the world that we can just humbly play a part. Father, help us to get ourselves in perspective and then to recognize that a watching world 
will have a proper perspective on us if we have a proper perspective on ourselves. It will cause no stumbling out there if we're right, right with you in here. Father, would you take this list of qualities and the dynamics of spiritual leadership and would you just impress upon us at large as a church that we must never compromise this list and that we must always maintain a pastoral staff and an elder board that meets this criteria. And Father, would you help the men of this church to be driven to meet the demands of this list and then the moms and the wives, the women, the children, the teenagers. Father, that all of us would just realize that this is just a list about people who are growing in Christ and who are walking in obedience to your word and who are fit for your use. So accomplish your purposes. Bring conviction where it's needed. Teach us how to walk with Jesus the way that we should. Teach us how to love him more. Father, may Fellowship Bible Church always be about the gospel. May we always be all about Jesus. It's in his name that we've gathered. It's in his name that I've preached. And it's in his name that we go home. Amen.